What's next in innovation? That's not the right question. It's where. Puerto Rico is more than just a tropical paradise. It's an innovations paradise where startups and global players coexist in a vast and vibrant ecosystem where talent runs deep, highly skilled, and bilingual. Plus, Puerto Rico has the most competitive tax incentives in the U.S. If you believe your business can go anywhere, this is the place to bring it. Find out more at investpr.org slash economist. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Tracking down who's been in contact with COVID-19 patients is tedious work. Now, Apple and Google are laying the groundwork for apps to do it on nearly every smartphone. We look into the promise and the perils of farming the job out to technology. And with plenty of couples cooped up in COVID quarantine, you might expect more of one of two things, breakups or babies. We examine data from past global crises to find out just how much the world's storks will have to do after the pandemic passes. First up, though. Today, South Korea held national legislative elections, the first country in the world to do so under the cloud of COVID-19. It's had enviably low numbers of infections and deaths from the disease. That's thanks to extensive testing and tracing of the contacts the infected have had with others. So electioneering has carried on. One candidate is Taeyong Ho, who was once a deputy ambassador to Britain for North Korea. He defected in 2016 and is now running in the swanky Seoul district of Gangnam for the main opposition, United Future. He's got a pretty catchy campaign video. While countries such as America tussle with how to handle their own upcoming polls, South Korea is showing how things can go ahead almost normally. I went to a polling station in Gangnam this morning. Lena Shipper is our Seoul bureau chief. The mood was slightly strange compared with um, a normal election. You know, you had this queue of people outside the door. They're all wearing face masks. They're all very far apart from each other. Nobody was really talking. It was quite a lot quieter than I remember um, previous elections I've seen. And before they entered the polling station, they had to disinfect their hands and put on plastic gloves. And before they entered the building, they also had to have their temperature taken. Once you got into the polling station, there were polling workers who would ask you to take down your mask so they could check that your face matched your ID card. And then they would give you a ballot paper and you could go into the polling booth and cast your vote. So is it surprising to you that South Korea actually went ahead with its elections today? I mean, given the way things are going in other countries, certainly the ones also talking about voting? So the fact that they're holding this election at all, I think, reflects how well they've handled the pandemic so far compared with a lot of other places. Other countries where it's gotten out of hand a lot more, like Britain or France or certain states in America, they've decided to cancel or postpone elections because the prospect of having people crowded together in polling booths and sort of sharing pencils and being in closed spaces just didn't feel good. 
But um, the Korean government feels that the uh, pandemic's at bay. Um, For the past nine days, they've had fewer than 50 new cases confirmed every day. Today, the number was 27. So clearly, they felt reasonably safe in conducting these elections. And what about the run-up to the poll itself in, in terms of campaigning? I mean, how does a political campaign even work among all this? So you'd have thought it would have been a bit more online and and sort of socially distant than it would be in normal times. But actually, the way the campaigning's worked has been maybe a bit more subdued than usual. But in fact, I went to a campaign event a few days ago, and it was pretty much like they usually work. So there was a group of people doing a dance routine to a bad K-pop tune, wearing their usual bright pink hoodies. This was an event for the main opposition Conservative Party. Their colour's pink. And they had pink face masks on as well. And the candidate, when he made a speech, had a sort of plastic shield in front of his face. And all the people who attended were wearing face masks. But actually, it was a pretty big crowd in a narrow street in front of the stage. So it wasn't really that different from normal. So it seems that broadly people are protecting themselves but still going out campaigning, attending campaign events. Uh, You think it's been enough to reassure voters that it's safe not only to come out for bad K-pop tunes but also for the vote itself? I mean, how's the turnout been? So it seems people feel pretty safe about it. I mean, by about lunchtime today, turnout was higher than 50% already, which is more than it was in previous elections. And the people I've spoken to at polling stations said they felt safe and that it was important to hold the vote. Um, You've got to remember that democracy is quite a recent thing in South Korea. The country only democratized in the late 80s after widespread protests. And so there's a living memory of people having fought for democracy and they feel very strongly that it's an important thing to go ahead. In fact, there was one older gentleman I spoke to at the polling station today who um, said that the fact that South Koreans have pushed for this election to go ahead despite the pandemic just showed how highly they valued elections and that it would just be a waste of money to postpone them. I mean, as a a rule of thumb in times of crisis, people tend to favor the incumbents. Do you think that'll be the case in South Korea too? Do you think the ruling party now will, will do better than they might otherwise have done? The approval rating for President Moon Jae-in has gone up in the past couple of weeks, so it looks like people give him or his government some credit for the competent handling of the coronavirus outbreak, and they look set to benefit from that in the election. On the other hand, this is the first National Assembly election that happens under new electoral rules that were passed in December, and those are essentially supposed to strengthen smaller parties and ensure that they get more seats. So, I mean, how significant is that electoral reform? How much has that changed the scene and and how much do you think it might affect the outcome this time around? The reform has prompted the formation of several new parties. There's now um, 35 running, which is 14 more than during the previous election in 2016. And there's a bunch of sort of fairly weird ones. So there's one called the Revolutionary Dividends Party, which has decided it wants to run the country like a company and abolish the National Assembly because that's very expensive. But the bigger parties, so both the Minju Party, which is the governing party and the main conservative opposition, have tried to game this new electoral system by setting up specific parties that are designed to win proportional seats and that are going to merge or sort of cooperate with their main bigger sister parties after the election. So the overall effect of this electoral reform is probably going to be quite small. And so in terms of reform, it doesn't sound like things ultimately have been much reformed. New party bosses, same as the old party bosses. 
Yeah, so um, critics actually say that those efforts by the two main parties of setting up these satellites undermine the very idea of this reform. But the Electoral Commission doesn't think that any rules have been broken. It says it can't do anything. And the Constitutional Court could presumably make a judgment, but that would require the government asking it to. And given how enthusiastically they're engaged in this behaviour too, that seems very unlikely. So overall, there's not going to be that much change. Thank you very much for joining us, Lena. Thanks very much for having me, Jason. To get a lot more analysis like this, subscribe to The Economist, a trusted source of information and, well, intelligence for 175 years. Just go to economist.com slash radio offer. 12 issues for $12 or £12. GEP AI-powered digital transformation. GEP is the global leader in AI-powered procurement and supply chain transformation, helping companies achieve impressive new levels of resilience, sustainability, and competitiveness with strategy-managed services and AI-powered low-code software platform, GEP Quantum. Hundreds of market-leading companies worldwide count on GEP to transform their procurement and supply chain operations and achieve amazing results. GEP.com A large part of South Korea's successes so far with containing the coronavirus have hinged on contact tracing, finding out who the sick have been in contact with, and hopefully finding those people before they infect anyone else. This kind of work has long been done by scrupulous public health officials. But now countries and companies are looking for more automated solutions. On Friday, Apple and Google announced that they're working together on a framework for building contact tracing apps using Bluetooth. The technology would cover almost every smartphone in the world, tracking who almost every smartphone user has spent time with. Google and Apple, in a very rare case of collaboration, said that they were going to build a sort of underlying protocol which would make it easier for everybody to build these kind of Bluetooth apps that know who's been next to who. Hal Hodson is The Economist's Asia technology correspondent, based in Hong Kong. So far, it does not sound like either Google or Apple are going to build a contact tracing app themselves. Instead, what they're doing is they're collaborating to make sure that almost all of the phones in the world can talk to each other using this Bluetooth protocol. So it's going to be a little bit like the internet. The internet works because everybody has agreed on standards to send data around. And in apps like Gmail and Google Maps and, you know, the Economist website, they all run on top of those standards. And so Apple and Google have agreed to do exactly the same thing with the Bluetooth standard so that governments can build contact tracing apps on top of it that work really well. But some digital phone-based contact tracing has already been going on before this, though, right? Yes. So one of the first countries to do contact tracing through phones in a very intense way was Singapore. And they have an app called Trace Together. And what it does is register contact with everybody else who has the app installed. So if you and I are sitting in a coffee shop and we both have Trace Together installed, our phones will send messages to each other in secret saying we've seen each other. That information can be shared with the public health authorities if need be, if one of us goes on to be infected and the phone receives a signal saying that that person that you saw in the coffee shop, they got infected. By doing that, they can sort of try and, you know, 
track the virus as it moves through the population. We want to find every last copy of that virus, track it down, isolate the people who have an infection of it until it goes away. Not everybody that they have been in touch with will get infected, but, you know, it's, it's a sort of better safe than sorry idea. And, and from the start of these discussions around contact tracing through technology, have had discussions about privacy, and this does sound like quite a potential invasion of privacy. It really depends on the way you do it. It would be very privacy invasive if what this app did was to send your location to a central server run by the government somewhere on the internet and that that server just collected everybody's Bluetooth numbers and used them to build a giant database of who had been in contact with who. That would be massively invasive. But that's not how this system is going to work. Apple and Google have explicitly built it so that instead of sending those Bluetooth numbers that I identify my phone to a central storage location, they just stay on my phone. The other phones that I see, that list stays on my phone. It doesn't go anywhere else. It only goes somewhere else if the number of an infected person arrives on my phone from the central health authority and then my phone scans through everyone I've ever met and looks for a match with that infected person. And it's only if there's a match that my information gets sent off, potentially with my consent, to the central health authority. That's, that's how it's going to work in Western countries. But in order for that kind of scheme to work, it, it would require at least a great many people to have that app and to, to be willing to part with those data. I mean, do, do you think this scheme as laid out could work? I think it could work, but you're right that there's a huge challenge in getting enough people to use the app for it to be useful. Currently in Singapore, about one-sixth of the population is using the app. The most successful version I've heard of is an app in Iceland, which is used by about 40% of the population. And, you know, that's not good enough. Even 40% is not good enough. So the problem with the apps as they exist today is that you have to have your phone screen on all the time if you want to participate. And that's very annoying. It drains your battery. The changes that Apple and Google are making will mean you don't have to have your phone screen on all the time. And so there's lots of things that can be done to kind of make it more pleasant to use the apps and make it less annoying. Another caveat is that this approach of using Bluetooth through apps on smartphones inherently, by definition, only works for 50% of the people on the planet, give or take. There's a full 50% of people that either don't have a phone at all or only have a feature phone. That doesn't mean it's not worth pursuing. It, it's, it's worthwhile to bring down infection rates in, in rich places, but it's just worth considering when you think about how to spend time and resources as a techie or as a community and I suppose the other point is that the proximity of two phones is not the same thing as a, a necessary sort of jumping point for, for the virus from one person to another. No, it absolutely isn't. I would say that what Bluetooth is is perhaps the sort of the best proxy that it seems possible or even sort of hypothetically feasible to use without being massively in breach of sort of principles of privacy and freedom and civil liberties. But... Bluetooth is not going to pick up things like if the virus is traveling in an air conditioning system, which is possible, or even just something as simple as I cough on my hand and I put my hand on the rail on the tube and then you walk onto the tube three minutes later and put your hand in the same spot and you get infected. Bluetooth has no idea about that because we're not in the same place at the same time. But it, it's still possible that it's helpful. And the way in which it can be helpful, even though it's not a perfect proxy, is if you have enough testing. So the only way any of this tracking stuff works, the only way that the phones make sense, 
is if there's huge, huge, huge testing infrastructure. So that means that when the network of phones finds all these contacts of an infected person, all of those people can go and be tested. If they can't go and be tested, or even worse, if people who are symptomatic can't be tested, then the network is for nothing because there's no positive signal going into it to force the contact tree to find out who else has been infected. And so it's a really important point that for all the cool, whizzy tech from Apple and Google in the world really means nothing if there's no testing or at the very, very least, if there's not a a diagnostic capability from physicians maybe over the internet or something. And that is a problem that a lot of countries need to ramp up. Hal, thanks very much for your time. Thanks very much, Jason. As lockdowns continue around the world, couples now find themselves spending a lot more time with each other. One way to pass that time might be to take advantage of the newfound enforced intimacy. And that could mean more little bundles of joy than usual early next year. When Ukraine's president did a televised address to the nation asking citizens to stay at home, he suggested that ordinary citizens, if they were bored, could make the most of their time and hopefully make lots of babies because Ukraine has a demographic crisis. Rachel Dobbs writes for The Economist. Lots of people on social media have also been joking that we might see a coronavirus baby boom in nine months' time. Well, they've also been joking that we might see quite a few divorces not long after the lockdowns finish. But I mean, what data are there to support the idea that a baby boom might be coming? Predictions of baby booms are pretty common after disasters. For example, they were predicted after Hurricane Sandy or snowstorms in New York State. There is some truth to this. A 2008 survey found that hurricanes and tropical storms were associated with an increase in births nine months later, although hurricanes' warnings were associated with a decrease in births. Crucially, these are disasters that required people to shelter in place and had a relatively low death rate. Other disasters with a higher death rate have seen the reverse effect happen. So essentially different kinds of disasters have different demographic effects. Yes. So after disasters that have a high mortality rate, like famines, earthquakes and tsunamis, you tend to see a dip in the birth rate in nine months time, which makes sense because there's less people around to have babies. But those tend to bounce back quite soon afterwards. Lehman Stone, who is a researcher at the Institute of Family Studies, which is a conservative think tank, suggests that epidemics can follow a similar pattern. After the SARS outbreak in 2002 and 2003, there was a drop in births in Hong Kong nine months later, but then a sharp rise in the subsequent two years. And after the Ebola epidemic in 2016, there was an increase in fertility among West Africans about 18 months after it struck. So as communities were sort of trying to get back to normal. And so as regards the baby boom one might expect after these lockdowns, is that just because people are cooped up and some of them have little else to do? So a huge amount of factors could influence what happens after the COVID-19 pandemic, most of which are hard to predict. So couples being in enforced proximity due to quarantine measures might push birth rates up in nine months time or in the next year. 
However, the quarantine measures are going to have a very damaging impact on a lot of countries' economies, and bad economies typically mean that fewer people choose to have children, so that might negate any baby bump that we see. Probably unplanned births will go down because people are not going to be going out and having sort of hookups because no one is able to socialise as normal. Well, exactly. That does bring us to the point that not every sexual encounter is with an eventual baby in mind. I mean, are there other effects, for instance, on the sex industry? Yes. So there's been a big rise in condom sales, although people have already started to speculate about whether government lockdowns of factories will eventually lead to a shortage of condoms, which would be a whole other problem. The sex accessories industry is doing very well. There's been a surge in demand for sex toys. So it looks like couples are finding that sex helps to pass the time, but they might not be using that sex to make babies. Helps to pass the time. I mean, uh, I suppose that is one way of thinking about it. Rachel, thanks a bunch. Thanks, Jason. Follow all of The Economist coverage of the COVID-19 pandemic and how it's swiftly reshaping the world, visit economist.com slash coronavirus. And if you like the intelligence, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. See you back here tomorrow. World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream. But what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts.